0: Today, we're going to talk about uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 8 to 10. The title of the sermon is Allegiance. We're going to discuss a rather large word. For some, it's a sacred category. For some, it's the beginning and the end, the the everything word. And that word is the word love. Uh, Love is a very big word, and it's a very popular word. Uh, If you consider the image behind me, uh, that image is actually a word cloud. For those of you that don't know what that is, word clouds represent the frequency of the words being used. So the more frequently a word is used, the larger the word becomes. And uh, the the less frequent a word is used, uh, the smaller the word is rendered. And the question is, uh, who's using these words? And these words in particular represent uh, words that are used in the last statements made by death row inmates. Uh, How many of you noticed that this word cloud is an image of a skull? And the rest of you said, ah. (laughs) I wouldn't normally put up a picture of a skull during the service, but... I thought it'd be appropriate for today. Um, The question I want to ask you is, what is the meaning and purpose and priority of your life for yourself? And I think many would use similar words like the ones you see behind me. Uh, This image in particular represents a unique perspective No matter what your perspective might be, I think the word love might stand out for you as well. We're studying verses 8 through 10. As I studied, though, this passage, I noticed that verses 9 through 10 are just reiterations of verses of verse 8. And so for time's sake, especially with communion and the annual meeting today, what we want to do is just zero in on verse 8. But rest assured, we're getting the bulk of verse 9 and 10 as well. Two points today. One, for God. And two, love people. You could read that as one sentence or two points. For God, love people. Okay? For God. Verse 8. Let me read it again. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Let's focus here on the first half of this verse. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. This word owe is the same root and word as the word debt that we studied in verse 7 last week. And the assumption here that Paul makes on the onset, as he begins talking about love, is that on the human level, in our economy as human beings, when we endeavor to love, the assumption he makes is that the mechanism at play, the underlying mechanism at play, is the economy of indebtedness. This is how we love. This is what it means for us to function in love. Now, none of us would say, you know what I really believe in? No death row inmate or none of us, I don't think, would say, you know, what I really wish I spent more of my life doing is to put other people in my debt. I really like having a sense of power and control over them. That's really how I really wish I rolled more. I don't think we explicitly say that. I don't think we necessarily say either on the flip side. I really like feeling indebted to people. I like not being able to do what I want to do or what I think I should do, but just living life filled with obligations. That's really my, my style. You know, we don't think that. We don't think in those terms. But this is what Paul is saying. Owe nothing to anyone. Why is he saying owe nothing? Because for us, we live as if we owe everything. This economy of debt. How we love. How we experience love. Our response to love. What we describe as love. What we label as love. In our world. In our system, in our emotional system, in our relational system, it's what Paul calls indebtedness." I love you, and the way I show it is by putting you in my debt. And when I love you, I unbeknownst to me sometimes and unintentionally often, it creates expectations on my part. And it develops a dynamic in our relationship. Or when I receive love, it creates a dynamic, with me on the other end of it. A theologian and author and thinker that I appreciated greatly in another season of uh, learning for me uh, was a man named John Piper, and he built his whole sort of life philosophy and ministry and series of books On this one idea of indebtedness. And what he said is that indebtedness is the opposite of the way that God intended, designed us to live. The way God created us, hardwired us to live, is what he calls by faith. And faith isn't feeling a sense of gratefulness that God loved me or did something for me or gave something to me, and now I'm just so thankful that I'm going to do such and such for God. That's not faith, he says. That's indebtedness. That's just gratefulness. It's what he calls past grace, looking backwards at a grace received in the past. And he says that's insufficient for how we are to live. That's not primarily what drives us as creatures. And he says what really works is not that sense of indebtedness that I have this obligation to God because he loved me in the past, but it's what he calls future grace or faith. That the reason we are able to move forward in life, is not because he loved us in the past, but because the past grace is evidence that he will give us future grace. And so he gives lots of examples. For example, he says, Jesus says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Well, how did Jesus endure the scorn and shame of the cross? By being grateful to God? No, no primarily by looking forward to future grace, the joy and the reward set ahead of him. And so Piper argues that it's not indebtedness that we are made for, that when we are living by indebtedness, that it tweaks our system in a most unhelpful way. Because it's not how we are hardwired, created to live. What really gives us life is faith. Now, there's a whole school of thought on uh, Piper's thinking, which I don't want to get into. But the point is clear. That there's a whole range of realities, privilege, entitlement, paying literal financial debt back, that causes us to feel indebtedness in life, whether it's loving somebody or being loved. The slippery slope is for us to slip into an economy of indebtedness with each other. And yet Paul says, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love. And that's very confusing for me because for me, love is owing a debt. Either me to somebody or somebody to me. That's what I know as love. Any of you remember Kevin Durant from the Seattle Seahawks days? In the basketball when we used to have a team? Uh, he was recently uh, voted MVP and there was a ceremony for him. He played for the Oklahoma City uh, Thunder. And uh, uh, he gave a long 28-minute speech. Any of you watch this speech? No? You don't follow him anymore? All right, Al. Me and Al. It's a great speech. I teared up uh, through the speech. But he basically spends the entire length of his speech, 28 minutes, listing persons in specific, starting with teammates, that he played with for a long time and then listing out the newer teammates and then uh, members of the organization uh, and then ending with his mom and he talks about each one by name the contribution they made in helping him in life and in the game which really is one and the same for him Uh, and when he's talking about his mom about how she went to bed hungry so that her boys can have food in their bellies how she worked multiple jobs and how the cards were stacked against them and how she was the key person that helped them to stay a family and helped them to uh, fight the temptations that uh, were alive and well on the streets and kept his head in the game and and he Tells a story about the time that they were finally living in their own apartment without a single piece of furniture. And they were all as a family sitting, holding hands uh, in the middle of the living room, on the floor, feeling like they had made it. Telling these stories. And then he ends the speech by saying, Mom, it's, it's you who is the MVP, not I. And the whole crowd just rises spontaneously to their feet and standing ovation to this woman who's weeping and Kevin Durant has been crying the whole speech and teammates are crying and the owner of the team is crying. and Everybody is just... But the whole speech was about his debt to these people who had loved him, who had seen him, who had seen him through and I couldn't help but think back to my own sense of love and debt as, a, as an immigrant to this country. For me, I don't know how to think about love without indebtedness. I always have these two facts. My parents came here, risked, left everything, risked everything, and brought me here for me. So I always have that. That's always this pointed part of my story. And then, not just did they come here as immigrants, but then they live this life as immigrants, working 18-hour days and leaving behind, you know, the social status and social security and coming here. And the story is told that it was for me, so that I would have a better life, and I would have a shot at dreams and How does one live in that story and parse out love and debt? Do you know about the curse of working hard? That if you work hard, you unintentionally, unconsciously often put other people in your debt. The world owes you because you worked hard. Do you know about the curse of being religious? That if you come to church every week and you live a moral life and you read your Bible, say your prayers, and take your spiritual vitamins, then what does that do? Well, then God owes you a good life. This is is part of explicit Jewish theology back when Paul was writing this. One of the ways you knew somebody was not right with God is is if they were poor, or if they were unhealthy physically, if they had some sort of conflict in their life. That's one of the ways they were officially allowed to judge somebody. Can you be religious? Can you be morally upright without God owing you? Do you know about the curse of being privileged? Or the curse of being a criminal? Or the curse of being a lawkeeper, Or the curse of being a creative type? I wish I could go into that one. But all these varied ways of living life create an economy of indebtedness. And either the world owes us and God owes us and you owe me or I owe you and I owe them. How do we owe nothing to anyone except to love? Do you know how to do that? Is it possible to navigate emotionally, socially your day? Yesterday, we had a great family outing. We ended the day at Italian Family Pizzeria on First Avenue uh, near Pike Place. Anybody been there? What a bunch of wonderful Italian people. I'm not stereotyping. The waitress is actually from Italy. She just learned how to speak English. It was so much fun. But we had ordered the pizza to go initially. But then we changed our mind. But, man, they bent over backwards to take care of us and to make sure we had a good time they even brought water and sustenance for our dog that was tied up outside and what did i feel indebtedness how did i show an exorbitantly large tip how else do you (laughs) navigate society and yet paul says owe nothing to anyone except to love it's not just for parents loving children for immigrants coming to america it's not for the kevin durants only of the world but i think it's what it means to be human is to know to be wise To be couth, to be savvy, is to know how to work out your debts well. Isn't that what politics is? Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Jesus, in talking about this very same topic, speaking to an audience that was steeped in a culture that is more familiarly oriented than any of us could ever understand at our place in history. He says to this very familiarly obligated culture, he says to them, literally, I'm quoting Jesus, he says, if you want to follow me, if you want to love me, you have to first, okay, listen, he says, You have to hate your mother, you have to hate your father, you have to hate your brother, you have to hate your sister, you have to hate your wife, you have to hate your children, and you have to even hate yourself if you want to love Jesus. What a crazy statement Jesus is making. Like if you have been in the church for a long time, there's still a good chance you never really quite figured out what Jesus meant by that. And if you're here and you're like a kid and this whole state verse is new to you, you're really confused. Mom, the preacher said I should hate you. (laughs) What does that mean? If you want to love me, you have to hate mom and dad and wife and brother and sister, and even yourself. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to love well, if you want to know how to love all these people in your life, and especially to you, he's saying to the, to the, to the disciples that he's talking to who are steeped in family obligation. He's saying to them, if you want to know how to love them well, the very first thing you have to understand is that you weren't primarily made to love people at all. Loving people is actually just an overflow, a symptom, a collateral damage of you loving me. The reason God made human beings is so that human beings would experience the love of God. And as they're filled up with the love of God, that love is meant to overflow to other people. And so the only way you can properly love other people is if you learn how to properly hate other people relative to how much you love God. And so if you think about God as the sun, now you're like, oh, that's where he's bringing in that picture. Okay, if you you love God like the sun, then all the other gravitational forces that's being exerted on you by other planets, that's other people, aren't going to take you out of orbit. And it's really important that you stay in orbit because if you are influenced by other gravitational forces, your orbit's going to break and you're slowly going to spin out of control and you're going to spiral towards your own destruction. And the way that you are designed to function is you're designed to have God at the center of your life and for you to orbit around God. And if you don't know how to do that and you allow the gravitational forces of other planets to exert their undue pressure on you, then you are going to experience disintegration of your orbit, you're not going to know how to love your parents well without putting them in debt or being put in debt by them. If you don't love God first and foremost, you're not going to know how to love your spouse without obligating them or feeling obligated to them. If you don't have God at the center, you're not going to know how to love your children well without controlling them or feeling controlled by them. We are created beings, created by our Creator for the purpose of loving and worshiping God. That's why we exist. And out of the overflow of that, then... And only then are we able to rightly, properly, in a healthy, proportionate, appropriate, sustainable way, are we able to love those around us. The key to loving neighbor is to love God. We don't have the wisdom and the faculty to love unless we love God first. And so Jesus says to those who would love him, he says, if you don't hate your mother, you're going to end up hating your mother. Does that make sense? Relative to how much you love God, relative to what you orbit around. Sometimes your love for other people can be perceived as hatred because you love God so much. Owe nothing to anyone except to love. The only freedom that's found is by loving God. The only orbit that allows us to stay in orbit is when we're orbiting around God. Now, on the one hand, when we think about love this way, it incredibly depersonalizes love. You can love people and you can say, oh, don't take it personally. It's not really about you. It's not because you're lovable or because I owe you something or because you love me first or because your need qualified you in some way. Nope, it has nothing to do with that primarily. The reason I love you is because God loves me and that love is overflowing to you. So it's not personal. It's not about you. It's not your loveliness that draws love out of me. And you don't have to sustain it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to cause it to come out of me. Nope. God is love. And he is in me. It's not indebtedness that's at play anymore. It's God and his love. Verse 8 as we learn how to love people, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another for, this is our focus now, the second part, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And here's the thing. When our allegiance is to God and God alone, it on the one hand, depersonalizes love because it's about God and not about people anymore. But on the other hand, Paul says, when you are able to love people without playing into the economy of indebtedness, when it's not about obligation anymore, it's not about controlling or being controlled. When you do that, then you are truly loving because that's pure love and when you are able to love like that then you fulfill the law that's the only way you fulfill the law and let me tell you something this graph behind me here this image is an inversely depicts an inversely proportional relationship so as the x axis that's the horizontal axis increases i guess for you it's going this way right then the y-axis, the vertical one going up and down, decreases. And this inversely proportional relationship depicts the relationship between law and love. Now think about this. As love increases, let's put love on the y-axis, then the law decreases. Is this not true in my marriage? If I love Susie, does she have to have rules for me? Nope, no, rule, no flower Tuesdays, no tulip Tuesdays. Because I already love her, and I want to gift her with things out of my heart. It's natural. It's, it's instinctive. I fulfill the law of tulip Tuesdays. I'm just totally making that up. We don't have tulip Tuesdays. But you understand, I don't have a curfew. I don't have Tulip Tuesdays because I love my wife. And she doesn't have to have rules about me and how I have to be involved with the kids because I love my kids. So as love increases, law decreases. But as love decreases, what happens? Law has to increase. Right? Right? Because if I'm not loving my wife, then all of a sudden there are rules at play. You can't talk to me like that. Why do you talk to me like that? Let's have, a, let's have some fair fight rules. Rules? Why do we need rules? Because we're not always loving to each other. That's why. And if there's total relational breakdown and there's very little love, if at all, then what happens? Then we end up calling a lawyer. Lawyer. Looking at the Huellers now. (laughs) They're attorneys. (laughs) Do you see that relationship? As love increases, law decreases. So what happens when we are able to have total allegiance to God? And we orbit around God. Then we are able to appropriately and freely, truly love each other, which what does that do? For he who loves, what happens? Fulfills the law. And if we fulfill the law, then what happens? Then all of a sudden, we started out by saying, you know, it's not personal. I don't love you because I love you. I love you because God loves me and I love God and you get the leftovers. Right? But then, when we fulfill the law, then relationship increases, love increases. And so, all of a sudden, now we're intensely personal again. So, the only way, listen, if you're in any kind of relationship, listen, the only way to truly see people as they are and as they need to and ought to be loved is by loving them the way God would love them. Part of our problem is believing too highly in ourselves and thinking we have enough love in ourselves to love others. Of course we don't know how to do that well. And so we oscillate back and forth between love and hate. And here, the Bible says, no, 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 when you love God, you are channeling God's love and it's flowing through you to them and you're finally able to love them the way God wants to love them. And so this thing that had become completely depersonal now allows us to truly see people the way God sees people. And so the law of love is fulfilled only if and only if God is at the center. And it's not the economy of indebtedness that's at play. Then we are able to focus on actually loving people rather than managing our own anxieties or rather than trying to keep some law about love. I have one Application point, uh, and then we close today. Uh, Julie announced earlier, some of you uh, came in a little bit after the announcement, uh, about a new care team ministry that we want to uh, uh, reignite uh, or relaunch for our church. This is a ministry that preceded my coming two years ago. But it's a a ministry that allows us to care for the whole congregation. And uh, this is not a ministry for just those kind of people or that kind of group. But it's uh, uh, an area where any of us can be in need of this kind of ministry. It's congregational care uh, and memorial services and visitations. And if you look in your bulletin insert, you can see a longer list of examples But it's not limited to those. It's one really practical, accessible way that we get to love each other as a church. And often the kind of loving we do through that ministry is anonymous. And so there is no indebtedness that uh, we have to risk uh, introducing into our uh, system here as a church. You know, if you have a baby you know, suddenly you have needs that you couldn't predict. Or if you get sick, or you get into an accident, or you lose your job, or there's some other trauma in your life, you realize how dependent you are on your support system. And then sometimes you realize you don't have a support system. And so you never know where the lightning's gonna strike. All it takes is one phone call, as they say. And so if you ever are struck by lightning here, we want to be able to love you. So here are a couple of things we want to do. Number one, if you have an acute need in your life, we don't know if you don't tell us. And so just one quick phone call to the church or a conversation with a member of the staff, and we'll know. And we can get that word out to the care team. And what the care team is, I hope, 80 to 90% of all of us on that call list, okay? If we were all on that call list, whenever there's a need, somebody who's leading, and Carla's uh, going to lead this ministry, she can say, okay, here's the need. Who can help with this? And then five or 12 or You know, 30 of you will say, oh, I can do this. This one's easy. I'm in town. This is right up my alley or blah, blah, blah. I can do it. No problem. And the rest of us, the rest of the 400 of us can say, ah, I don't have to do this this time. There's enough of us doing it. So it's a really low bar, low entry fee for this ministry. You may only have to do it once a year maybe at the most. And so I want to just encourage all of you to fill out that form, drop it in the box, And it's just your opportunity to be able to love people in a really practical way at a time when they really need your help. Okay? So that's the application for this sermon. Uh, Let me close with this conclusion statement about our communion. Jesus said this. He said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. How did Jesus do that? Well, for God, Jesus died on the cross to cleanse us of our sins. He loved us freely out of the overflow of the love relationship that Jesus has with God. And in doing so, he fulfilled the law. And he made a request of us on the night in which he was betrayed He said, I want you to take communion. I want you to eat of this bread that's broken for you. I want you to drink of this cup which is poured out for you. And as you do that, I want you to remember that I died for you. I want you to proclaim my death until I return."